Hello and welcome to the May 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name's Colin Yeo. It was a bumper month for immigration and asylum law updates with 61 posts published on Free Movement in May. I can't possibly cover everything, but the highlights include an important High Court intervention on automatic detention, um, some new judicial guidance on immigration bail, going to cover some of the latest case law from the Court of Justice of the European Union, and there's actually several cases to cover on that front, and then return to the UK for some developments on the now infamous Windrush cases, a few new cases in um, business cases, and um, also asylum, and then a few of the usual dry but really rather important um, procedural changes as well. I'm going to end by mentioning the royal wedding, Um, so turn away at the end if that's not your bag. So, starting with the um, detention stuff. The High Court threw something of a spanner in the works of um, the automatic detention policy that's been in force since basically 2006 in the UK. Now, this case, um, Law Zcas against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWHC 1045 Admin, is quite an important development um, in legal terms. Whether it makes any impact in practical terms remains to be seen, but it's certainly an interesting case. And it involves a, a Lithuanian claimant who'd been um, convicted for possession of an imitation firearm, given 14-month sentence, had been held on remand since his arrest and charged the previous year, and then he was due to be released um, on the basis of time served at the time of sentencing. So as a foreign national offender, he comes to the attention of the Secretary of State's Criminal Casework Directorate and they detain him to effect removal. Now, at the time of the decision to detain, the Home Office was basically only getting itself into gear. So the Secretary of State didn't have the trial record sheet, didn't have the judge's sentencing remarks, didn't have any OASIS assessment from the offender manager or any, um, any, any sentencing report, basically. They were all requested, um, but they hadn't actually been um, obtained by the Secretary of State. And the High Court basically accepts that um, there has to be an individual assessment of threat, not just in the question of of whether a person is going to be deported, but also in the question of whether a person is going to be detained. And essentially, you can't have an individual assessment if you haven't actually got any basis for making that individual assessment, because essentially this this guy was detained on the basis that everybody else is detained and they didn't have the um, information that would have been needed to, to, to do a sort of proper assessment on whether detention was necessary and proportionate in the circumstances of the case. So it, it's a really interesting one. It remains to be seen whether that's actually going to change anything on the ground, but it certainly opens up um, opportunities for further legal challenge if on the fact in similar cases um, the Secretary of State hasn't got the material to make an individual assessment and hasn't in fact made an individual assessment um, as at the time of the decision to detain. I said I'd cover the um, new guidance on bail that was issued um, around the beginning of May and it, it's quite a different new um, presidential guidance note to the old one. The last one was from 2012, weighed in at 31 pages, the new one is 19 pages and um, generally speaking, it, it seems to us to be a pretty good document. Um, some of it is quite ambitious, but rightly so. So hearings are bail hearings are supposed to be listed within three days of an application being made. That's not always the case, of course, but the tribunal does seem to be really quite good at trying to prioritise um, bail applications in most cases. Um, there's some interesting features to the case, um, including that judges should not be automatically imposing a residence condition because only a bail condition which is proportionate 
and uh, it restricts freedom of person if absolutely necessary should be imposed. Um, it's also said that landlords should be presumed to give permission for a person to live in a property unless the Secretary of State can prove evidence to the contrary. And, of course, it, it's standard for the Home Office to assert that a landlord hasn't given permission, so hopefully that practice will end. Um, it's said that judges are, should not be encouraging withdrawal of bail applications as an alternative to refusing bail. I think that was also in the last guidance, and, and certainly that's been the sort of official line for the tribunal, I think, for some time. But in practice, of course, that still goes on all the time. And if you're a representative and a judge is telling you, look, I'm going to refuse bail, why don't you think about withdrawing? It is extremely hard to then press that judge to make a full decision, knowing that there's a very high risk um, that the, the application is going to be refused. And unfortunately, some judges do still um, approach bail hearings with, um, with that kind of guidance in mind. So it, it looks to us like a, a pretty useful bit of guidance. And um, hopefully that will improve matters in bail decisions. Okay, turning now to the Court of Justice of the European Union. Um, it's quite an interesting case to start with um, because of, I, th I think especially really, because of a later development. And it's something that we've, we've been thinking about, but we haven't put um, a, a blog post out on yet. So it's a case called KA and Others Against Belgium. It's case C-82-16. And a significant part of the decision deals with the 2008 Returns Directive, which doesn't apply in the UK. But the judgment also deals with some of the other issues uh, of EU law, which is just generally applicable, including in the EU. And essentially, this this bit, which is applicable in the um, sorry in the UK, the, the bit that is applicable in the UK is on whether an entry ban trumps the right to family reunification under EU law. And basically, the Belgian authorities. Um, that their standard practice was to reject applications for residence cards or for entry on the basis of EU law residence um, where a person had been subjected to um, an entry ban. Now, of course, we have those kind of entry bans here in the UK. They're dealt with at paragraph 320 of the immigration rules and they don't apply in EU law cases. So it's not directly transferable to the UK. However, um, at the time that I'm, I'm speaking, We've just seen that there have been um, amendments laid for the um, Immigration EA Regulations 2016, which include treating a, an application for a family permit or residence card as being invalid. Um, I think actually also, just, just to go back to that, I think also including um, just a, a residence certificate as well, um, an application would be treated as invalid if a person is subject to a deportation order. So the application wouldn't even be considered. Now, how that um, squares with this KA in Belgium case is a bit of a mystery because on the face of it, it would seem that that approach is incompatible and that there has to be an individualised individualized assessment um, in each case. Of course, it could be that the UK could say that, well, there has been an individual assessment and that was at the time of the um, decision to make the deportation order. But um, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting one and, and, and watch this space. Okay, another um, CJEU case. This one is B against um, Land Baden-Württemberg. I guess that's Germany. And um, it sort of matches with the um, Vomero case as well. So the reference for the first one is C316-16. And it's really on the question of whether war criminals can be expelled or excluded under EU law. And the answer is a slightly nuanced one. So um, somebody had been denied refugee status, basically on the, on, on the basis of the exclusion clauses, at Article 1F of the Refugee Convention. And it was held that that automatically uh, meant that a person could be excluded under EU law. 
and essentially the, the the court says no that's not quite right there's got to be a case-by-case assessment and of course it may well prove to be the case that a person is excluded and can be excluded um, but there's got to be a proper assessment under EU law. Okay another case this one on Dublin three cases it's um, Adil Hassan against France C647-16 and I, th- I think we just give this one a short mention because the the French apparently have a practice of um, preemptive or, or, or something Dublin removals where a person is removed under Dublin even before the other member state has expressly or impliedly accepted the request to take the person back um, that that question of whether that was lawful was referred to the CJU and the answer is no well it doesn't happen in the UK anyway so I think we can move on from that um, another interesting one before we move on from the EU um, stuff this is a, a new reference that's been made um, to the CJU, so it'll be some time before we get a, a decision back on it. It's um, a UK case, um, and it's about basically whether self-employed women have Sampre maternity rights. The Sampre case um, is an interesting one on workers retaining um, their worker status during maternity leave. And yes, I can almost hear what you're thinking, which is how how could the UK have taken a position that workers lose their worker status during maternity leave, but that was exactly what the, the UK position was prior to Sampree. And the UK, uh, unfortunately, takes that line in self-employed cases as well. Now, there's a really interesting post on the website with the background to this by my colleague Desmond Rutledge, and he makes the point that that wasn't always so. Actually, the UK government previously conceded that self-employed women should retain their self-employed status during maternity leave, but that was changed at some point, and the UK no longer takes that line, hence the need for the reference to the CJU. So obviously, once we hear something back on that, although to be quite some time before we do, um, we'll update you. Moving on to Windrush, I'm just going to give this a relatively short mention, because obviously it's hugely important, particularly for, for the individuals it, it assists. But um, I don't think it's, it's worth going over the detail on the podcast. So basically, this is about the Windrush scheme being updated. Um, the initial Home Office response to the scandal was to set up a, a slightly informal task force. There was a kind of number that you could phone and so on. And that was replaced on the as of the 30th of May with a, a more formalized helpline and um, a sort of proper team and a, a guidance document and an application form and, and so on. So it's, it's, the scheme's been essentially formalised a bit. And um, if you are assisting somebody who, who potentially might benefit from it, and it's quite, a, it's quite a wide group of migrants potentially, and it could be anybody arriving before 88, although obviously do check that against the, the specific criteria, um, then, then that's the place to go to essentially and to, to, to look through the guidance and the application form. Um, There isn't any news yet on how the compensation scheme might operate or when it might be up and running, but obviously we'll update you when there is some news on that. Now, there's an interesting blog post I want to mention by Tim Booley from um, Landmark Chambers on basically judicial review as a potential remedy in Windrush cases. And Tim's point is that it's um, the question of whether a person has um, citizenship status or right of abode or ILR is essentially a precedent fact it's possible to bring an application for judicial review to establish whether a person does or doesn't have that status. That's a potentially a good way of challenging um, some of the ridiculous decision-making that we've seen from the Home Office in these cases. And there is an entitlement to legal aid as well. So um, that, that's, it, it's an interesting one. And I think, you know, as a matter of practicality, most people would obviously be wanting to, to use the 
um, helpline and the, the, the more formalized application process I was talking about a minute ago. But in the event that somebody is rejected or, or subjected to a ridiculous decision of some sort, then um, judicial review is certainly a remedy which ought to be carefully considered. Okay, moving on to something completely different now, a case called Ryanair against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWCA Civ 899. Now, this is a case that um, I had some involvement with at the court below, having been representing um, Ryanair, and this has gone up now to the Court of Appeal. I'm no longer involved in the case, um, but it's an interesting one because it, it, it raises some really quite important issues of um, free movement within the EU and the carrier liability scheme, whereby an airline is essentially fined £2,000 if a person gets onto one of their planes, arrives at the um, UK and turns out not to have the correct documentation. And um, the case, I, I'm not going to go through the details of it, I think, in the podcast, because it's, um, it is it is slightly um, uh, technical, but essentially it's really what, um, how does free movement law work in terms of the documents that you have to carry, um, what does the document have to say to give you an automatic right of entry, and when might you have um, a non-automatic um, right of entry, so to speak, um, under Article 5.4 of the Free Movement Directive as well, where even if you haven't got an ID card, you haven't got a passport, and you haven't got um, some sort of family permit to allow entry, you're still allowed to try and prove your case. And how far does that really enable you to actually get on an airline in the first place to arrive in somewhere like the UK in order to try and do that? So some quite, quite interesting questions. It'd be interesting to see if that one goes further. I want to turn now to a business case. Now, this is um, an interesting one. And um, uh, yeah, it's interesting that the, the argument was run. So it's a case called Talpada. Um, it's in the Court of Appeal, reference 2018, EWCA Civ 841. And we've run with the headline for this one, No Legitimate Expectation Arises from a Chat with the Business Help Desk. And that gives you an idea of the, the argument that the um, claimant, the appellant, was trying to run in this case. And, it, it, and the, the exact details don't matter, but basically um, somebody had made an application for an employee, um, had reused a certificate of sponsorship. They thought that um, they'd been told that they could do that by the um, business help desk. Um, there was a bit of a dispute about whether that was the case or not and exactly what was discussed. Um, but essentially, you're unlikely to be able to rely on the legitimate expectation argument on the basis of that kind of relatively informal discussion with the business help desk. Now, and interestingly, the possibility isn't completely closed off by the Court of Appeal. And it suggested that you know, potentially, if you'd raise all of the circumstances and been given a clear promise, then that could be... Uh, could give rise to a legitimate expectation, but um, you'd have perhaps a bit of difficulty proving that. Um, and the Court of Appeal certainly some of the um, some of the judges were were quite resistant to the idea that that um, that would work as an argument. So it's an interesting case. It, it gives us a bit of information about the um, the scope of legitimate expectation, how it might apply in these points based system cases. Um, but essentially, it's not um, it's not a terribly helpful case. Okay, um, another subject completely, um, humanitarian standards are not the test for a cessation decision. Now, this is the headline we ran for a case called MA Somalia 2018, EWCA Civ 994. And it's the case of a Somali national who'd been granted refugee status, um, later committed criminal offences, 
and the Home Office decided to take um, cessation action on the basis that conditions had improved, had improved in Somalia. Now, we've seen several of these cases, and this was mentioned also in a Chief Inspector report, that essentially um, cessation action was being pursued on a very selective, arguably discriminatory basis against certain people where they had committed criminal offences. Um, but the same argument has implications for others who continue to retain their refugee status. And if one is being completely logical about this, then um, the same arguments that applied in this MA case would apply in essentially a lot of um, Somali cases. Um, and therefore, logically, if the Home Office is going to pursue cessation in one such case, then it ought to be pursuing cessation in other cases as well. Now, obviously, that would be pretty disastrous from a humanitarian point of view, but that's kind of that's the logic of this position. Conversely, you know, the Home Office shouldn't be pursuing cessation in any such cases, but but um, there we go. So the, the Home Office is really basically um, only pursuing this in, in criminality-type cases where they're interested in deportation. Now, the, the appellant MA had succeeded in the courts below on the basis of a very poor humanitarian situation in Somalia, making cessation inappropriate. But the Court of Appeal overrules that approach and says that the, the humanitarian situation isn't relevant to whether refugee status ceases or not. That's all about safety. And the Court of Appeal is also quite explicit in saying that there should be a symmetry between the uh, decision to grant refugee status and also the decision to cease refugee status. And arguably that contrasts with some other recent cessation decisions we've seen from the tribunal recently, but um, that perhaps um, needs to be argued another day. So, I mean, logically, I think I think it's hard to um, argue really here with the Court of Appeal in that you know, if if there is safety for on in refugee status terms, um, then cessation is um, hard to resist. Um, however, of course, that doesn't mean that the person should be sent back, and it may well be that um, a person in MA situation might well um, be allowed to remain or, or have a very good case for remaining on human rights grounds or humanitarian protection grounds. Um, that's not dealt with because it was um, the case was surely um, was restricted entirely to dealing with refugee status. Moving on now to another refugee-type um, claim in the Court of Appeal. This is the case of Yusuf against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWCA Civ 933. And in this case, essentially the Court of Appeal holds that um, a person can be disqualified from refugee status on the basis of the exclusion clauses because of inciting terrorist acts in general without there being a requirement for there to be a link between the incitement and a specific terrorist act. So it's quite interesting um, on the facts, although hopefully pretty unusual. And this gentleman, Mr. Yusuf, loses um, really, I think, because of the nature of his um, general support for terrorism, which was um, pretty sustained, pretty appalling, and also quite widely read. So he was was running a website with... um, as many page views as twelve to twelve thousand to eighty thousand hits per week, um, so that's quite substantial. And it's the Court of Appeal does say that you know perhaps in on other facts where you've got a teenager sort of ranting into um, you know into a into a webcam and nobody's looking at it, that might not perhaps represent the level of seriousness that's required to engage the exclusion clauses as established in the Al-Siri case in the Supreme Court. But on the fact of this case, it was bad enough and therefore it did and it was right and proper that he be excluded from refugee status. Also on refugees, um, not case law this one, but um, quite important for those affected. So 
The advent of the new immigration bail system um, earlier this year led to something of a, a worrying change of practice at the Home Office because a lot of Home Office caseworkers suddenly started to impose um, prohibition on studies on young people here in the UK. And that was interfering with exams and with education and was, was frankly deeply problematic. And part of the problem was that really the Home Office hadn't given any good explicit guidance stopping that from happening and therefore you, you've got several people at the Home Office who, who were just using those powers um, fairly randomly and, and willy-nilly, frankly. So there was a bit of a um, media storm about it. I think legal challenges were being brought, and the Home Office relented relatively quickly in this case and amended its guidance so that basically it should be the, the no-studies condition should be imposed far more um, sparingly in future. So um, positive change there. If you do come across people, um, particularly young people, with no study restrictions, then it's worth looking at the guidance. It's worth thinking about whether there may well be a legal challenge because the restriction isn't proportionate. It could be a breach of human rights. So th- th- there are still possibilities for challenging um, if if you come across somebody who has had that condition imposed. Right, moving on to a procedural update. Hopefully this one won't matter in too many cases, but it's it's, I think, still important to know about it. So the tribunal procedurals in the first tier have been amended so that the time limit for appealing to the upper tribunal and the, the, the commencement of that time limit matches with the time limit for appealing to the first tier tribunal. So we're talking about the end of the process here. If you lose, if you have to pursue an appeal to the upper tribunal, first of all, you apply to permission for the first tier tribunal. If that's refused, you then go to the upper tribunal. That's dealt with in the upper tribunal rules. But the initial application for permission to appeal to the first tier tribunal is dealt with in the first tier rules. And the time limit of 14 days now runs from when a determination is sent, as opposed to when a person is provided with um, their determination. So that change um, took place recently. Let me just see if I can see the exact date. It's the 14th of May 2018. Um, you know, hopefully the Home Office and the Tribunal are putting these things in the post pretty quickly. Um, but um, you know, who knows? That 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 that's a technical change, but it, it, it could be important in some cases potentially. Um, we also saw a few technical changes with a new practice statement for immigration tribunal powers being exercised by members of staff rather than by judges. Now, we all know that there are huge waiting times for um, tribunal appeals, so freeing up judicial resources is very much to be welcomed. However, I think a lot of us have got rather mixed feelings about extending um, sort of the, the role of caseworkers who aren't judges into judicial functions. And the new one, the new practice statement specifically does refer to Um, judicial functions. So um, if you're worried about this, interested in this, then do take a look at the full details. I'm not going to go through um, all of the things that a caseworker can do. Just mention the the new ones that have been added, and that is to consolidate or hear two or more sets of proceedings or parts of proceedings raising common issues, provide for a particular matter to be dealt with as a preliminary issue, decide the form of any hearing. So I guess that means whether it's going to be oral or in, um, uh, in writing, and to do direct a party to show cause why an order for wasted costs should not be made under Rule 9, although not actually to make the wasted costs order. So those are things that judges themselves don't have to do and that can be dealt with now on an administrative basis. There are other things as well already, um, but those were already dealt with in the previous practice statement. So I'm just mentioning there the updated powers. Um, another procedural case for you, this one is um, Watson against Secretary of State for the Home Department 
and Extant Appeal Section 94B Challenge Forum 2018 UKUT165IAC. And this concerns the outstanding Chiari and Bindloss cases. So before the Supreme Court made its decision in Chiari and Bindloss, quite a few people had been removed pending deport, um, been removed pending their appeal. So they'd essentially been pre-deported and then had to try and pursue their appeal from abroad. And some of those people have um, stayed in touch with their lawyers and they've continued to pursue their appeal. Some of them are asking to be brought back to the UK in order to engage with their appeal properly and to give evidence. And in this case, it's said that the venue for deciding whether that is appropriate is in the first tier tribunal, which should be seized of one of these appeals if an appeal has been lodged, and that the first tier tribunal is said to be under a continuing duty to monitor the position and ensure that the right to a fair hearing is not abrogated. So if the tribunal thinks that um, somebody does have to be physically present in the UK in order for the um, hearing to be a fair one, then it should stay the appeal proceedings. The Home Office should be expected to bring the person back to the UK, and if not, then an application for judicial review needs to be made to the upper tribunal to challenge the Secretary of State's decision and compel the Secretary of State to facilitate the appellant's return. Um, If the tribunal, on the other hand, decides that the appeal process is compliant with Article 8 and it is fair, then the tribunal's substantive decision um, can be susceptible to challenge on an appeal to the upper tribunal on the grounds that the tribunal was wrong to conclude. So that issue of whether whether the appeal should have gone ahead without the person present is something which can be appealed as a matter of law to the upper tribunal. Um... I'm going to move on now to another um, procedural case. This one's a little bit obscure, but important for the litigators amongst you. It's a Court of Appeal case called Araso, and it's 2018 EWCA Civ 845. I'm just going to give it a bit of a mention because it's essentially um, somebody who had had a number of different proceedings um, in court, and there was a dispute about whether a consent order earlier in different proceedings was binding later on the Secretary of State, and in short the answer was no, because the terms of the consent order didn't compel the Secretary of State to do anything in particular. And it's an example really of how difficult it is to get a substantive um, result really from a judicial review application in terms of actually getting the Home Office to do anything but reconsider a decision. So um, it's an interesting one. I think it's important for you to take a look at if you are dealing with judicial review litigation because um, it's got some lessons for us really on the content of consent orders, perhaps on the wording of consent orders and also on their limits and how far we can rely on them later in separate proceedings. So um, interesting from that point of view. Now, I mentioned on the blog um, a new decision on costs, and this is a case called AWUA. Um, We can call it AWUA number two, perhaps, because there was an earlier reported decision um, in AWUA, and this was promulgated on the 8th of December 2017. It's a decision by the then president of the upper tribunal, um, President McCloskey, and the president um, Clemens of the first-tier tribunal. So it's a joint costs decision. And it's clearly, it was intended to be a guidance case. And yet, for some reason, the Upper Tribunal's Reporting Committee has decided not to report the decision. And at the time that we wrote this up, it hadn't even been added to the database of unreported decisions either. So essentially, um, frankly, it rather looks like the Upper Tribunal has decided to bury this decision. So we took the decision to report it on free movement anyway. Um, 
there's a big question mark over how far you can rely on an unreported decision like this one. Um, But we thought it was important to get the context out there and explain what the thinking had been of that fairly heavyweight um, joint presidential panel, at least at the time that the decision was made. And I I think it's important because part of the context to this is that um, really the tribunal is complaining about litigants ignoring directions and breaching rules. And yet the tribunal is markedly reluctant to enforce its own rules, particularly against the Home Office. Um, and you know, it's no surprise, therefore, that, that um, the, the, the Home Office is serially in, in breach of those procedural requirements and seems to be completely incapable of, of litigating in a responsible and organised way. So the, the sort of headlines, really, should we say, from the determination, which is a fairly lengthy one, are that it may be appropriate for an immigration judge to award costs against the Home Office, um, either on the basis of wasted costs or on the basis of unreasonable conduct, those being two separate costs powers, where the Home Office defends an appeal which is objectively assessed irresistible or obviously meritorious, where the Home Office fails to undertake an initial assessment of the viability of defending an appeal within a reasonable time of it being lodged, normally within six weeks, and where the Home Office fails to reassess the merits of an appeal following material developments, such as the service of important new evidence. And it's not that, you know, instantly the moment that an appeal is lodged, the Home Office needs to review it, or that instantly the moment new evidence is submitted, that's got to be reviewed by the Home Office. Judges will, of course, give um, decent time to any party to assess what their position is. Um, But it's not unlimited time, and it should be utterly unacceptable for the Home Office to arrive at the door of the court and concede a case you know, 12 months, 18 months after an appeal was lodged and after the other side has incurred their legal costs as well. Unfortunately, we do see that happening day to day in the tribunal and it's a practice which really should stop. Unfortunately, this AWUA number two case hasn't been reported, so it's not perhaps the turning point that we might have hoped for. Quick mention now for a case called DIN. This is um, DIN against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWHC 1046 admin. And this is a case where somebody claimed to be a British citizen by virtue of various statutory provisions we don't need to go through now, had been born in the UK in 1968, and if she was the person she claimed, she was British. But the Secretary of State was disputing whether she was that person because of some slight differences in the spelling of her name on some documents from Pakistan. Um, So the reason this is particularly interesting is because it's a relatively rare example of what might be described as as a Harrison judicial review case, which is where somebody essentially brings what's what's by nature really an appeal um, to the High Court, and where the High Court judge is going to have to make findings of fact, evaluate witnesses and documents in a way that they're not usually accustomed to, I think it would be fair to say. Um, In this case, the um, claimant ultimately succeeds, um, she relied on DNA evidence, which indirectly showed that she was who she said, and also had a family friend who was able to attest to her identity. And the judge found that she was indeed the person who was born in 1968, who was named on this birth certificate and who she claimed to be. So she succeeded. So it's worth remembering that if somebody is in that kind of situation, um, a judicial review can be brought. It's a precedent fact type um, case, like we mentioned earlier um, with the Tim Booley post on Windrush cases. Now, finally, we put out a blog post on the Royal Wedding and how quickly uh, Meghan Markle could get British citizenship and also to look at the requirements. So 
Um, basically, we said it's five years, not three, because although a spouse of a British citizen um, can, in theory, um, apply for citizenship after three years, it takes a person normally five years in order to be become settled, which is one of the preconditions for applying for naturalisation. So um, that three-year rule is essentially redundant in the vast majority of cases these days. Um, what The reason I mentioned the post is because if you're interested in the residence requirements for nationality um, and for naturalisation, then we've put together... Um, tables and some um, a sort of guide really to where discretion can be exercised so where the, re- the normal requirements can be waived and the circumstance in which that will happen and what the home office says about um, its its guidance on those cases so um, you know it, it's just a, a reminder really that um, there are some fixed requirements for naturalization but there are also some requirements which are flexible and we know from the nationality instructions called the nationality guidance these days um, when the Home Office might at least consider exercising its discretion. Okay, so that wraps up uh, May 2018. I hope that was helpful, and I'll see you next month. Goodbye.